I'm A.O. Benny. I'm Kiki. And we are Todd. Hello and welcome back to our series for this Black History Month titled Underrated Heroes. And what that is, we just wanted to highlight and honor underrated Black figures that we believe deserve a little bit more recognition. And so we just want to introduce you to a few of them today. Today we're going to be talking about three different Black figures who have made an impact in the arts. Um, specifically, we'll be talking about Gwendolyn Brooks. Gordon Parks, and the last one is Alvin Alley. So we're going to start off with Gwendolyn Brooks. And so Gwendolyn Brooks was born in Topeka, Kansas on June 7th, 1917. And she was born to a father who was a janitor and who had hopes of becoming a doctor. I don't believe that dream was fulfilled based on what I saw. Um, and she, her mother was a school teacher and also a classically trained, uh, pianist. I always say that word wrong. Hopefully I said it right. Um, so maybe that's kind of where she got her artistic side from, maybe from her mother. Um, and she what seemed to always be interested in poetry and writing and just gifted in that area. And her parents did invest, um, their their time into her fulfilling that dream and her first poem was actually published when she was only 13 and it was called Eventide and yeah her parents just really um, supported her passion for reading and writing and by 17 she was actually publishing poems in the Chicago Defender which was a newspaper that served Chicago's African-American population and another piece of information that I found out that was pretty cool about the Chicago Defender as well is that it was actually founded by another underrated black figure who you can look into. We're not going to talk about them, but his name is Robert Senstack Abbott, and he was the actual one who founded um, the Chicago Defender. So um, do you want to talk more about her life from after like her early years? So basically, Gwendolyn Brooks is known for being an American poet, author, and teacher. Um, her work is specifically known about celebrating the life and struggles of ordinary black people in their communities. And pretty much she went through her early life pretty much observing, like, you know, being an observer about how people live their life, you know, in the rural black America, but particularly in the Bronzeville community. So during her early life, she had um, gaining an interest in poetry, not just because of how she loved poetry, but basically because poetry was being uh, presented to her as a way out, as a way as an outlet. So, like, pretty much people have used the arts throughout in our entire history about being an outlet, being a way for you to be able to turn your good, le your bad lemons into good lemonade. So, um, I don't have anything else right now. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, I just want to talk about, so basically, yeah, like Ben said, mm -hmm. she is known for, like, if you search up Gwendolyn Brooks, you'll mm -hmm. find that she is the most revered poet of the 20th century mm -hmm. and just very hard, highly regarded. And... I mean, that is for a multitude of reasons, but um, one of those reasons being that she was, um, she won the Pulitzer Prize in 1950, mm -hmm. and she was the first black author to win that. Um, and her, um, 
oh, she she won the Pulitzer Prize for the book that she wrote called Annie Allen, mm-hmm. which was published in um, 1949, and then she won the prize in 1950. Mm-hmm. So that made her, you know, a very like revered poet because of that. Like she made history for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Annie Allen is pretty much a, a compilation of poems about a young woman growing up in the Bronzeville community, going into womanhood. So that was so revered at the time about, you know, the changes of a black woman and the changes that she goes through. So that's why she was able to win the Pulitzer Prize because it was such a revered collection of poems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, so she actually, um, yeah. So for her education wise, as far as she was obviously naturally gifted, but she did apparently also go to a junior college. And from that, she got work with the NAACP and during this time, while she was working at the NAACP, that's actually when she really refined her craft as a poet. So she's, yeah, she's she's gifted and she was also, you know, educated in that arena as well. So. Some of her most well-known poems are a street, uh, not poems, but books are the a street, collection, yeah. collection of poems is A Street in Bronzeville, mm-hmm. Annie Allen, which is what she won the Pulitzer Prize for, um, Maud Sorry. Oh Ma- yeah, Ma- <laughs> I know Mod Mar or Ma- Mod Marrington yeah. and her autobiography. Those mm. are some of her most well-known books. Yeah. So she, yeah, she really was also an activist as well. So the cool thing is that the arts is sometimes not perceived as necessarily being like activism, but the cool thing is that you can be an activist in any kind of specialty that you're in and so for Gwendolyn Brooks poetry was her way to um basically that was her form of activism and so you'll see that her later poems in the 1960s well not later later but her poems during the 1960s which was the during the civil rights um era civil rights movement era um she just showed a lot of her support and just political consciousness is a word that was used to describe her poetry during that time. Um, and I did want to highlight some of the quotes that she said um, from some of her poems, because I don't want to go and read a whole poem here. Um, but this one is actually from Annie Allen, where from which she did win the Pulitzer Prize. And it says, exhaust a little moment, soon it dies. And be it gash or gold, it will not come again in this identical disguise. And that was from Annie Allen. And another quote of hers, um, which I don't think is from a specific poem, but apparently she said this, is when you use the term minority or minorities in reference to people, you're telling them they're, they're less than someone else. And... Yeah, I, I, I like both of those. I think it was pretty cool. Um, the first one in Annie Allen, she's really just talking about, I feel, um, you know, just like living life and not um, living life in the moment that you're like while you're in it, um, because that thing will not that experience the exact moment won't come again. And then her perception of using the word minority or minorities, I thought was interesting because I definitely use that term as well. So I actually was like rethinking that. I'm like, should I use the word minority to describe myself? But I think that is definitely like a conversation for another day. Mm-hmm. But I did think that was kind of an interesting thing that she did say. Yeah. And we also got to talk about all the awards and her legacy of hers that she ended yes. up doing. So something that she did win was the Poet Laureate of Illinois. 
So the poet laureate means that she was basically like the standard poet of the state of Illinois mm -hmm. up until her death of the year 2000. She was also named, um, the, she was also appointed the American Academy of Poets um, executive up until her death in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. She was also the, she also won the National Medal of Arts from the President of the United States. And she won the Fellowship of the Academy of American Poets and the Ger Guggenheim Foundation. Mm hmm. So she was also mm. very well decorated. Um, so that's basically the life of Gwendolyn Brooks. She actually died. Well, I would say not too long ago, based on some of the other people that we're covering. Yeah, but she died in the year two thousand. So, yeah. So it's not too long ago, actually, December third, yeah. two thousand. Mm. Um, and her impact is still here today because thankfully we have so many of her works to mm -hmm. look at. And so I think, are we ready to move on to our next? person yeah, Gordon, Gordon Parks. Parks all right okay now we're moving on to Gordon Parks Gordon Parks was born in Fort Scott Kansas on November 30th 1912 and he is an American photographer musician writer and film director known for his style of documentary photojournalism in the 1940s through the 1970s um, the things about him that are very important is just talking about his early youth and childhood he was born to Andrew and Sarah Parks. He is the youngest of 15 children. And the things that really shaped him into who his career was was by some of his early on experiences. One of the first most important experiences that he faced was when he was 11 years old. He was thrown into the river by three white men who, for, um, who were thinking that he couldn't swim. So they threw him in the river and he could swim, but he was smart enough to know that if he just kept himself underwater and held his breath, that they would think that he was drowning. Hmm. So he did that and that was something that clicked in his mind early on that this is hard living for black people. Oh. Um, something else that happened to him was when he was 14, his mother died and he developed a fear of death. So mm -hmm. in order for him to, to get over that fear, he slept by his mother's grave for several nights mm -hmm. in the family house. So there were some things that really helped shape to who he was when he was growing up. So because of those traumatic experiences, he gained a new lens over what life was like, and he knew, noticed that black people generally have it harder. Um, do you have anything to say? Yeah, so mm -hmm. one word I'd use to describe him, if you really want to get to know Gordon Parks, is I would say multidimensional. He is so multidimensional, multifaceted, however you want to say it. And... He is known, if you look him up, for his photography and for his uh, photographic abilities. That's what he's most, like, revered for as far as, like, one of the most revered um, photographers of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But as Ben said, he also, later on, he became a fiction and nonfiction writer, a music composer, a filmmaker, and he even dabbled in, like, painting. Mm -hmm. And um, going on from what Ben said, during his childhood that's when he developed his passion for photography. So photography was his first introduction into the arts. And it was after he saw some images of migrant workers in a magazine. And from that, he was inspired to buy a camera. And he actually bought a camera from a pawn shop and he did not have anybody to teach him. So he actually taught himself how to use it. And from his own devices, he was able to win the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship in 1942. And that is actually what really helped to jumpstart his career as a photographer and how he got many of his like his starts in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, yes, because so. um, the majority of his photography dealt with the issues of civil rights, of poverty, and of African-Americans in different um, 
settings. Mm -hmm. So something that people need to notice is that when you take pictures of people in like everyday life, there's rich people, poor people, you know, people have different experiences and they're able to see the different experiences of others through photography. So that's why it became such a pro uh, prominent um, means of like, you know, documentary style for him. Yes. Yeah. And because of his interest in and his support for the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. once again, just like um, the first person we talked about, um, he really this was his way of showing his support and this was like ben said his way of documenting that so his advocacy mm. and documentation style was through photography mm -hmm. um and he was very much um you know he, he was very much highly regarded and respected for his works uh -huh. um and so yeah he had very many um notable moments so i'll mm. just go over a few of them mm. and so he was the first african-american staff photographer and writer for Life Magazine, which is huge. And he covered subjects related to racism and poverty, and also did expand as well and covered fashion and entertainment. And he took memorable pictures of leaders such as Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., and Stockley Carmichael. So, yeah, that's kind of like one of his big, um, like something that really distinguishes him and why he is a notable black figure. Um, another thing he did was he had his most iconic images. Um, you can search them up. And one of them is called American Gothic, which was released in 1942. And his Emerging Man, which was released in 1952. And what they captured was activism and humanitarian humanitarianism. No, am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay, so that's what the, those really capture. So he did that. And then in 1969, he became the first African-American to write and direct a major Hollywood studio feature film. And that was called The Learning Tree, which I'd love to see. And it was based on his own um, semi-autobiographical novel that was actually a best-selling novel. Um, and then do you want to talk about his next one that he did? Sure. Yeah. So basically, his next role that he did, his next role in film that he did was creating the film Shaft. So for those of you who don't know about black exploitation, black exploitation is a chronicle of series of films that pretty much there's some of them are interconnected, some of them are not, but they're pretty much uh, exploiting what it's like for the everyday black life, mm -hmm. like you know the struggles of slavery, the struggles of rural black life, the mm -hmm. drug addictions, the crime all that was being pushed to the forefront in these films. And they had like, you know, a prominent hero figure in each one of them. So the the next film that he did, Shaft, was what we all consider to be the first black exploitation film. Mm -hmm. Now he he directed it and he wrote it and he produced it. And he had, um, at the time, it was very controversial releasing that film because many people didn't like how the film was so, like, you know, exploiting what it's like for black people. And like, you know, because at the time you had to think about who Black people were being portrayed in films. Right. Like, we were being portrayed by Sidney Portier, Haley Belafonte, as these, like, you know, attractive, handsome men in these nice, like, they're in the army or they have some type of good job or something like that. And in black exploitation, they were pretty much portraying the crime elements, the bad elements of the black community. Mm. And they were very controversial at the time because people feel like they shouldn't have been showing those images, especially during the time when they're fighting for civil rights. Right. Like, trying to uplift yeah. their voices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, continue. No, that's pretty much it. So basically with Shaft, Shaft became a huge success. It ended up becoming an Academy Award winning film. Mm -hmm. And it introduced the world to the new 
theme of black exploitation films. Yep. Yeah, really cool. And after like that, after he did that, and so that was in 1971. Mm-hmm. If we're just doing chronologically, that's when he released Shaft. So that was the second one. Mm-hmm. And then he's also known for actually producing and directing a ballet titled Martin, which was dedicated to MLK Jr. Actually, which is pretty cool in 1989. So that's why I feel like he's so multifaceted because it's very rare that you can find someone who is not only like interested in different like artistic endeavors, but is actually very talented at them and actually, you know, gained attention and um, success in these areas. So yeah, he, he basically, I would say almost did every single, like every single area in the arts. He captured it in some way with his own special touch. And as far as his like passion as it related to the civil rights movement. And that was a big part of um, what he represented. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. And he also, um, he also took photos for Ebony, um, Vogue, Glamour. And so he, like, as far as being a notable black figure, um, that's pretty cool too, because he also created um, a lane for um, black people in that arena, which is like more of like the beauty and like fat high fashion industry. And he actually, uh, like, if you look him up, they say that he took some of the best photos for mm. Vogue. And that's a, a world-renowned photographer. Yeah, yeah, that's a very high achievement. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, it's really cool, and we shouldn't undermine artists as far as it relates to civil rights and yeah the the lanes that they've paved for us um today if we wanted to pursue that as well um and i think i wanted to talk about i oh yeah there was a famous quote from him and this was actually uh published in life in 1999 and this i guess just really embodied why he started doing what he started doing And it said, um, or he said, I saw that the camera could be a weapon against poverty, against racism, against all sorts of social wrongs. I knew at that point I had to have a camera. So Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Um, It's a pretty deep quote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Basically saying that, you know, only that through camera work can you like, and he's telling the truth Mm -hmm. because even now the way that we're seeing like, you know, all these injustices in the black community are through cameras. Mm, That's true. Yeah. Because it connects, like, you know, that's the way that the world can see the injustice going on is through the work of a camera. Yeah. And, you know, they, like, they won't prove for it didn't happen. Exactly. And they obviously didn't have social media at that time. So this was, like, mo- this was like old school social media where, you know, in the sense of, like, them, like, you know, having, like, um, magazines, magazines and newspapers mm-hmm. and, like, physical copies of things. And, like, that's how, that was their form of social media, of, like, keeping up and seeing what was going on in the world. And so he definitely... He, he realized that, I would say, like, early on in his life. And it's cool that that's what led him to this. Um, so do you want to talk about his rewards? And he was very, very well decorated also. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He was recognized with more than 50 honorary doctorates. And among his numerous awards were the National Medal of Arts, which he received in 1988. And today's archives of his work reside at a number of institutions, mm-hmm. including Gordon Parks Foundation, the Pleasantville, New York, the Gordon Parks Museum in Fort Scott, Kansas, and the Wichita State University in Wichita. Yeah. And the Library of Congress and the National Archives. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one thing to note is that there is something that there's called 
there is something. I mean, the, there is the Gordon Parks Foundation, and that was created to preserve his works. And you can find his works, his many, many works from all the different arenas that he covered in museums. So that's for his painting, excuse me, mm -hmm. um, and libraries for his different um, uh, writings that he did. And yeah, kind of, there's like, all, there's museums and things all over the country that have his works in it. So you should go and check it out if it's in your city. So. Um, for, and unfortunately, George, Gordon Parks uh, passed away in 2006, but, you know, his legacy still lives on through the films of Shaft because they're still making those movies today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has been, he has had a decorated history, but we feel like not enough people know about him in mm -hmm. general. So hopefully more people can do their own research and learn about who Gordon Parks was thanks to today. Yeah, I really hope that you guys, yeah, do like what Ben said and just find out more information on him. We are moving on to our third and last black figure, that is Alvin Alley. And he was born on Dis uh, January 5th, 1931 in Rogers, Texas. And he was raised in the rural south of Texas to a teenage mother and an absentee father who actually left when he was young. And he grew up pretty poor, so he was impoverished um, when he lived there. Um, and throughout his time there, he attended a Black Baptist Church. And in his future works, as we'll talk about, you'll see that a lot of the inspiration that he gained was from his experience and what he observed uh, attending the church. Mm -hmm. um, so at 12 years old, um, Ali left Texas for Los Angeles and... In L.A., he excelled in academics and athletics, and it was during his time there that he got his introduction to dance after seeing performances by the Ballet um, Russe de Monte Carlo and Catherine Dunham Dance Company. So after this exposure, that's when Ali decided that he wanted to pursue dance, and he started uh, studying modern dance at first, and at the same time, he started his formal dance training with Lester Horton in 1949. And a year later, he joined Horton's dance company. And um, I will also note, so Lester Horton is also a notable black figure, and we're not focusing on him today, but he is actually one of the founders of the first racially integrated dance companies, which was titled the Lester Horton Dance Theater. And so this is who mentored Ali as he was embarking on his own professional dance career journey. And um, he obviously was very well regarded by Horton as well. And following his death in 1953, so the death of Horton in 1953, Ali became director of the Lester Horton Dance Theater. And... At that point, that's when he actually had the opportunity to develop more as a choreographer. And so he started choreographing his own works. And, you know, basically, I think from this experience, he was able to gain a lot of his own, like, um, his own, like, personal abilities and his, like, own personal touch, you know, um, versus just being a, um, a dancer as far as, like, in part of, as a part of the dance company so following that in 1954 Ali uh, made his Broadway debut so he also did Broadway in Truman Capote's musical House of Flowers and in 1955 he appeared in The Carefree Tree 
and he was also the lead dancer in the Broadway musical titled Jamaica, Go Jamaica, in 1957. So um, that is kind of earlier on before um, what happens next in his life, which is probably the most notable thing that we know him for. Yes, exactly. In 1958, his next step was to open up his own dance theater. So he developed the Alvin Alley American Dance Theater in 1958, and the company is famous for showcasing the universality of the African-American experience through dance. Um, his work fused the storytelling of theater, the movements of modern dance, ballet, and jazz with the black vernacular, creating hope-filled choreography that continues to spread global awareness to black life in America. You know, his most famous work actually is Revelations. And as you were saying, he was in, he was um, inspired a lot by the black church and what mm -hmm. was going on. So Revelations is a compromising of several dances that are being danced to by the soundtrack of, like, you know, old Negro spirituals, old black church songs like Wade in the Water or, mm -hmm. like, you know, um, Wade Out Moses. You know, they're being danced to by... They're being danced to in a subtle way that shows the experiences of slavery, shows the experience of poor life, shows the experience of rural black America. It shows so much throughout these plays. And it is actually, Revelations is one of the most performed ballet in the entire world. And that's on that, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So, and it was developed in 1960, and for it to be shown over 100,000 times between now and then is something spectacular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, one of his most other most famous uh, ballets is Cry, which was developed in 1971. It was a one-woman dance ballet by Judith Jameson, and it is 38 minutes long, and it is done to um, showcase the versatility of black women. The dance was dedicated to all black women everywhere, especially our mothers, and Judith Jameson was his muse, so he had to do something that was specifically for her. Now, if you don't know who Judith Jameson is, I recommend looking her up as well, because she's an excellent dancer and almost as revered as Alvin Alley, and mm -hmm. she now leads the Alvin Alley Company. Wow. Yeah. yeah. There's also yeah. something else that you have to know about Mr. Alvin Alley is that he hated throughout this entire time, he hated being called a black choreographer mm -hmm. because being labeled as a black choreographer allowed someone to, pre to apply prejudice towards you without even being able to see the work. Right. So if you just said, oh, he's a black choreographer and you don't like black people, you're not going to want to see or hear from what he has to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, and I, I can understand what he's, I can understand what he's saying, even though like I very much identify with people being like, oh, the first black this, the first black that, because I think there is a sense of pride, I would say. And as far as like it being at the, like being a, um, being like the first to have achieved that can be for other younger black kids. Um, they can see that as something for them to work towards, you know, like it is, it can be encouraging, motivational. Like I know that when I see that, oh, this person was the first black this, that's that's encouraging like oh this person's a first black female surgeon that's encouraging to me but not everybody likes that to be placed on them and i can also see the downside in that especially in a community um like i come from a dance background and i can definitely tell you even now um when i uh, my sister and i would attend um ballet and um we would do contemporary like hip-hop like all sorts of different dances that i would do um, there was a lot of discrimination for some reason. And I remember, especially when we were in Quebec, we were the probably only two black people at that entire ballet school. And let me tell you, people did not like us and they didn't want us there. And it was very obvious and we felt very left out. Um, and yeah, but I, I don't know. But then there was like people like, for example, like him, Alvin Alley, um, or like Misty Copeland. So people who really helped 
um, I guess, to create a lane for us in dance um, that helped to be like, okay, like it is doable. You know, like my sister was really interested in ballet and it's like you have these people to look towards. So it's helpful. But at the same time, I guess only focusing on that can, you know, maybe like lessen the impact overall that he had on the artistic community or on the dance community. So I can see where he's coming from. Um, and, oh, this is one of his quotes, actually, that can kind of embody what how he felt. And it says, I'm trying to show the world that we are all human beings and that color is not important. What is important is the quality of our work. So uh, I don't think he was necessarily saying, like, to be colorblind, but I think he was just trying to say that maybe for him personally, you know, that's not the most important thing. And he really wanted to be known for how, like, his talent and his craft and the works that he did um, and not necessarily just like, oh, for for him being black, you know? Yeah, I get what he means by this quote because he's trying to show that we are all human human beings yeah. and that dance and art are the things supposed to con connect us. So that, you know, if you're coming to it colorblind, you're able to see it like, you know, the experiences as human experiences. But I believe that most of his work centered on the black life because he wanted people to relate to, you know, the black life yeah. is just as human as everybody else's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, like, uh, one of the things that I wrote down here was he said that his vision creating, the, like, his dance company originally was to enrich the American modern dance heritage and to preserve the uniqueness of the African-American cultural experience. So, like, he clearly was not trying to say be colorblind. That was not it. But, he, I, I, like, yeah, like uh, Ben said, I think his focus was more on that they are human beings also, which is like, oh, Black Lives Matter. Oh, my goodness. Look at him. Okay, it's like, it's basically that, like, yeah, they're human beings, and that's what we should be more focused on, and not just, like, the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I respect that, and I respect that, you know, he, um, yeah, he took a stance on something, and that was his thing, and he stood up for that, so. Mm -hmm. um, so, I guess following that, if you want to move on from after he created the American Dance Theater, well, the Alvinelli American Dance Theater, in 1958, he actually expanded it, and so he established the Alvin Alley, uh, yeah, American Dance Center, which is basically now known as a school, um, in 1969, and then following that, the Alvin Alley Repertoire Ensemble in 1974, um, and yeah, now it's it still it still continues obviously they and tour across the entire world mm -hmm. and it's being run by Judith Jameson. Um, so by the way, if you guys need to find more information about Mr. Alvin Ali, I recommend looking up his work. First thing I want you guys to look up is Revelations. Mm -hmm. This is a powerful, powerful collection of dances. And the second thing you need to look up is Cry because Cry is a powerful dance. Mm -hmm. And if you want to look up his first piece, it's called Blues Smith. And that is, that's what he did in 1950, the first year that he actually founded um, the dance company. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so another thing about Alvin Alley was that he was also very well decorated as our two other people that we talked about were, and he was awarded many distinctions that included the Kennedy Center Honor in 1988, and that was for his contribution to American culture and in 2014, he was posthumously, which just means after he died, he was rewarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And the this is the country's highest civilian honor to, to achieve. And this was for his contribution and commitment to 
civil rights and dance in America. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically it. And Mr. Alvin Alley unfortunately passed away in 1989, but we thankful for the legacy that he has left behind. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely very thankful for Alvin Alley and for how he contributed to the, um, I want to say to the black <laughs> dance community, but to be honest, just like the worldwide um, dance mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And I look up to him um, because like I said, the dance world is not a nice world. Let me tell you, people are not nice. Um, but he definitely, he was able to create his own lane and create a way for, um, uh, well, black. black performers actually, because initially it was only black performers before it became integrated. Mm -hmm. I forget the year that it, technically became integrated but originally no, 1981 1981 mm -hmm. originally it was actually a place for only black performers because like i'm telling you they were telling black stories people and <laughs> also people did not want black people up in their dance like academy. up in their dan dance you know and that goes on till today so mm -hmm. that's not a new thing i'm telling you i i experienced it my sister experienced it it's very very rare that you're going to look up and find uh you know a famous black ballet or whatever dancer like mm -hmm. i'm talking about more classical dances um not hip-hop and that's not because of their lack of talent but a lot of the times because they don't want them there and they're so they feel so down and discriminated against that they just honestly decide to just quit pursuing dance and i've been there so i can tell you it's true exactly um well Thank you so much, Mr. Alvin Alley, Mr. Gordon Brooks, I mean, Mr. Gordon Parks. <laughs> Gordon Brooks, somebody totally different. Mr. Gordon Parks and Miss Gwendolyn Brooks. Yes, we are happy we got to learn and talk about these figures, and I hope that you continue to educate yourself on them as well. And stay tuned for our next episodes um, where we are going to continue to highlight these black figures who are underrated. And our next episode is going to follow uh, some more um, people in the arts who we think have impacted mm -hmm. the community. Yep. And until then, I'm A.O. Benny. I'm Kiki. And we are tired. <laughs>